PV Mart stores are rooted in the communities we serve, and we are connected to the land in the same way our customers are. Whether you're an urban farmer, backyard chicken aficionado, traditional rancher, or anything in between, we offer just the right mix of homesteading, outdoor adventure, DIY, yard and garden, outdoor and workwear, husbandry, livestock, and pet supplies. Whether you're a dabbler or all-in, we're here to help and strive to offer a range of products that will meet the unique needs of our customers. PV Mart will always be there with the tools, equipment, indoor or outdoor wares, seed or feed, for everyday work, fun, or connecting to the land on a whole new level. For more information, go to pvmart.com. Hi, I'm Ian Sherwood. As a songwriter and musician, I've traveled through countless small towns, heard incredible stories, and witnessed some of the amazing ways in which people in towns and cities across this vast country have woven their lives into the land they live on. It's made me think about the way I interact with my own environment and the natural world, where my family's food comes from, what impact I'm having on the planet, and what we're all leaving behind for our kids to inherit. So now I'm on a mission to learn about how I can tap back into the essence of where we all come from. Today, with so much at our fingertips, it's easy to lose sight of the most important connection we have. Welcome to Connected to the Land. As we find ourselves in the grips of yet another Canadian winter, and we look out our windows to our forlorn garden patches in the backyard, we can maybe reflect a bit on what we did right and what can be improved upon. Preparing your garden for the cold months can seem like a daunting task, but how much work actually needs to go into it? People have been growing food in Canada for thousands of years, and winter has always been a part of the cycle. Surely it can't be rocket science, right? Over the time we've been making this podcast, I've had the opportunity to talk to more than a few folks in the agricultural sector. We've discussed everything from health of your soil, to reasonable expectations for an urban garden yield, to how to prep your food, and even how to grow indoors in the winter. But what do you do with your garden when the snow begins to fall? How far into the season can you wait? I wanted to know more, so I called up Curtis Stone, farmer, public speaker, urban garden specialist, and founder of Green City Acres, to find out more about putting your garden to bed, and learn a little bit about unschooling my kids in the process. Curtis, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? I'm great. Happy to be here. Well, excellent. I mean, I don't know what the weather's like in Kelowna. I thought I mentioned before. It's lovely, that... actually. It's what? <laughs> it's lovely. Oh, okay. It's sunny and warm. There's no snow. It's crazy. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, you're rubbing it in a little bit. I mentioned to you that we're <laughs> in the middle of a, a snow, rain, and wind storm here. It's a very typical East Coast kind of day. Totally. Not, actually, not at all. This is we, we get one or two of these a year, but uh, the power's been going in and out all day. So I, I'm hoping we can get through this conversation without uh, without losing touch, but we'll piece it all together one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually kind of perfect as I look out my window that you know I want to talk to you about winterizing gardens mm-hmm. and the different ways that we can kind of prepare and, and sort of blend from one season to another is a perfect guy to talk to about this and sure you know um but i'm wondering if maybe before we get started on that you can just give me a little bit of a backstory about what you're up to in, in Kelowna. yeah so um i mean where do you want me to start just kind of assuming that people kind of know who i am and then go from there or do you want kind of the whole story <laughs> well i mean tell i i'm i'm yeah, it's a start start near the beginning actually cuz there were, I mean I, it's a it's a great story to begin with so. Yeah, I mean um 
I got into farming, this would have been in 2009 officially. Um, I, like yourself, was a musician, uh, oh, okay. touring musician, kind of worked worked on that for I don't know, more like 15 years of my life. Mm-hmm. Ended up in Montreal, um, was trying to make a career out of being a, a film composer, an arranger, oh, nice. producer kind of guy. Um, and uh, I just got burnt out on that lifestyle. It was very... Um, unsustainable for me in, in, in so many different ways, partying late nights, mm-hmm. um, just kind of was getting burnt out on it, looking for solutions, always been interested in permaculture, discovered uh, Bill Mollison probably back in, I would have been a, a while ago, from 2003 or four or something and was kind of obsessed ever since. And then um, as my music career was kind of fizzling out, and this was around 2007 when we started to see a lot of the the fractures in the global economic system. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'd kind of woken up to things like what was going on with 9-11 and things like that. And I just, I didn't have a rosy view of where the world was going. And mm-hmm. so for me, it was like, well, let's take some responsibility for my life. And I'd always wanted to live off the land. In fact, that that had been, that had been my dream since I was like 12 years old, I, I really got into a lot of early environmentalists like uh, Rachel Carson and of course, David Suzuki and all that. I definitely have a different right. view on that in, in some ways now, but, but uh, that's what motivated me at the time. And then I, I was like, you know what? I, I don't know. I can't save the world, but I can at least take responsibility for myself and try to find a way to live in a way that's more close to the natural equilibriums and ebb and flows of nature. And so mm-hmm. that that's what, got me interested in agriculture. Um, and so, yeah, I just started reading and, and, and really becoming passionate about it. I mean, also, you know, pursuing the idea of living in community. I'd been interested in that forever. Right. And uh, when my music career really started to fizzle out, my band was kind of burnt out on it too. And so it just seemed like the perfect time to leave Montreal was in 2008. And then I came out uh, back out west. I was born and raised here in Kelowna and uh, came out here um with the intention of doing a bicycle tour down the West coast. And I, so I did that and I visited, um, you know, off grid homesteads and, and eco villages and, and, uh, urban farms and things like that. And was really inspired by things that I saw. I didn't really learn much about agriculture at the time, but I was very motivated to do more. And so I, you know, I rode my bike down to Tijuana, basically Mexico. I had the original wow. intention of going all across the U S but yeah, yeah. I stopped there. Cause I was just kind of stoked. I've just felt really empowered, you know, riding a bicycle for 4,000 kilometers yeah. is a great way to get in shape, but it was also a really, a, a, a real, um, test of my mental fortitude. And I felt very connected, um, to, the world and, and people I met incredible people on that trip. And, and back then too, you know, I mean, and still today, Canadians have a very dystopic view of Americans and uh, mm. American culture and politics and all that. And I, I don't know, I was just kind of really delighted to find out that people are the same everywhere. You yeah. know, it doesn't matter where they're from or what, what, they're about, what, what they seem to be about. And I kind of came back very optimistic. And then I just started my farm, Green City Acres. That was, uh, so, it was late summer of 2009. I started to prepare my first farm plot. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to buy land forever. All I wanted to do mm. was live on a homestead. I mean, I'm doing that now, but uh, 
then I just, I wanted to like literally just live on the land and just grow everything and be completely connected to this, the cycles that, and the things that we need as humans to live. And that was just hard to do because you need money to buy land. And I didn't have any money. I didn't have any significant money at least. And so the urban farm kind of was just a, it was really only a thing to do because it was my only option to get into agriculture. And Right. I, well, I was yeah. going to ask about that, you know, how, you know, starting off because so much of Green City Acres was the, the framework of that is being in the city. Yeah. And I was sort of spread over several properties. And I wondered if that was sort of part of the business plan from the get go, but it was kind of designed by just your situation. Yeah. It was just designed by my limitations. And, and I, and, you know, as a musician, I, I loved that. You know, there's a Miles Davis quote. I forget exactly how it goes, but it's like, the more you limit yourself, the more you find, um, you, you know, it's like it's a pentatonic scale, you know, mm-hmm. five notes. There's something that's actually very creatively liberating about that. And anybody who knows a little bit about music knows if you just go on the piano and play the black keys, you can make a tune fairly easily. And so right. I kind of found that same truth to exist in business or at least in my experience. And, and it was, it worked. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I started a business. I had three different uh, plots that are in the city. I was just leasing out people's front and backyards <laughs> and um, giving them vegetables each week in exchange for the use of the land. No money exchanged, had these basic sort of lease agreement frameworks. A lot of it was just on handshakes and, uh, and it worked. I mean, I, you yeah. know, I went in from not having any experience growing food or gardening ever in my life to making a full-time living in one year on the farm. And in that, in that wow. first year, yeah. I made $20,000 or so, $24,000 in sales, which wasn't like a huge amount of money. However, I was a single guy. I didn't have any kids like I do now and, right. you know, had a low overhead lifestyle and my farm was very low overhead. I was running it all by bike and trailer, just delivering right. locally. Yeah. And so it was enough to get me through a winter and buy seeds and start up the next year. And I did it. And it, you know, for, for three or four years in a row, I doubled the revenue of the farm um, and it and it grew and it got to a point in 2013 where I had um, four full-time staff um, serving 30, 40 restaurants, two farmers markets a week, 80 members CSA. Um, it grew beyond what I really hoped and it actually became a profitable business. I was wow. actually able to make good money on it. You know, like I would yeah. probably take home 50 to 60, actually one year I took home, well, in the earlier days, took home $75,000 just as salary. Wow. That's and amazing. it was great. Yeah. yeah, it was great. And that that's what led to me writing my book. And, and then, you know, back, it was in 2014, I actually really leaned out the business and that's when it became more profitable than ever. When I, cause at, at that, in 2013, we were almost on two acres and we had a lot of moving parts, a lot of customers, a lot of employees, a lot is in four, but there was four other part-time people that worked in the growing season too. Yeah. But then when I stripped it all down um, in 2014, basically went back to just one employee, myself and one other guy on a quarter acre. Uh, that was the year uh, we did that for three more years and we broke 100,000 every year in sales. And it was wow. the most profitable it ever been just by keeping it simple. Yeah. And so I mean, and this is how I wrote my book on that information. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an incredible story. I mean, and what you were able to achieve with just, 
um, I, I, I mean, I don't want to belittle it and say that it was so simple, but the way you describe it, it just really sounds like you had a, a couple of really um, honest and, and basic intuitions, which was, you know, you yeah. wanted to lessen your environmental impact. You wanted to live off the land. Um, but you know, and I can certainly relate to this. You were a starving musician. You're like, ah, I'm yeah. just, I'm hungry and I want, <laughs> I want yeah. to be able to afford, you know, a roof over my head and just, you know, you get those three things together and, and it all kind of came together pretty quickly. I'm wondering how, because I mean, you're not just putting little plots of, you know, raised beds in someone's backyard. Like you're taking over in some cases on these properties, you're leasing their front yards right up to the sidewalk. And I'm wondering, did you ever have any, any backlash from the city or from neighbors doing that kind of thing? Oh God, no, no, I had nothing but absolute serendipity the whole way through. Um, no, people were right into it. I mean, the thing that I discovered so, um, what 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 I experienced with urban farming in the last 10 years is very different from what people would experience now. Right. I think the world is a completely different place. And I actually, I don't encourage people to do what I did in certain cities now because of all the stuff that's going on. However, okay. without, we can get into that later if you yeah. want, but, but, um, you know, yeah, back then it was just, it was just amazing. I mean, you know, I just, and I'm a fairly social guy. I became a social guy, actually. I became, I wasn't always extroverted. I became extroverted in my bike tour because I was kind of forced to just meet people and strangers and be in sort of strange social situations and yeah. make the best of it. And so, uh, you know, with in my farming, it was amazing. You know, I'm out in somebody's front yard with 30 inch beds, you know, look, that looks kind of like a, a mini farm in a way. Cause it doesn't look like a garden. You know, we have beds of one crop, you know, there's tiny little monocultures that are needed to make your production, uh, profitable and, and, uh, efficient, but I'd be out in the front yard of somebody's, um, property and people would walk by and, Oh my God, this is so cool. People right. would come and yeah. talk and it didn't matter who they were or, or where they were from. You know, mm -hmm. it didn't matter their age group. I never in my life experienced a single individual walking by and going, Oh my God, what did you do to your lawn? Like never, right. not once. And, and, you know, I had in the 10 years that we ran the farm, I had, I turned over, over 20 different pieces of land because some of them would kind of come and go, people would move or circumstances would change and you'd have to take one plot and move and, and go and do it again somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I'm the, the networking I had on the street level with people was just incredible. It totally changed my perception of people. And I had a very myopic view of the world, um, before I got into this, that's what drove me in to do it. But coming out of it, I'm very optimistic about people and and uh it was yeah it was just incredible people yeah. would always be excited and and it, and it became so that in every place that i had a garden plot three four even ten other radical gardens would pop up in those neighborhoods just yeah. because people in the neighborhoods were going wow look at how much he can do on just a little space well i'm going to do the same and so it always yeah. be <laughs> i would often lose an hour or two of my day every day just answering gardening questions people because they'd be like oh my god he's putting spinach in the ground now i didn't think i could do that at this time of the year and it was always kind of like that and it was really cool just the sort of social equity that i was able to build with people in the community was just fascinating and it came back in droves because those people yeah. 
often would become really good customers or they would tell their friends about your business and they would be really um, real strong advocates for it. I mean, I, I promise we are going to get into winterizing your garden, but I mean, what you bring up right there is is really, I find that's really salient, especially when um, when we're talking about being connected to the land. I mean, I, that, I mean, that is the conversation. I mean, do we need to change how we consider the land we live on? I mean, what's its mm-hmm. purpose? Do we want fresh green grass or do we want properties that can help sustain our families? And, and I think just by nature of doing it, you're showing other people that, hey, you know, this is, this is something that, that we can do. And the more it gets done, the more acceptable it becomes. Well, exactly. And that's, that speaks to so many issues too. And that, and that's why I'm still, even though I don't, I don't commercially farm any longer, I've, mm-hmm. I've made a complete career of being a public speaker, agricultural consultant, you know, content creator, all these different things. I owned a wow. tools company in California for a number of years, which I recently sold. Um, so I've become as an entrepreneur, all based around agriculture. But the thing is that that greater conversation is very important, especially now, because people need to take responsibility for their livelihoods. Mm-hmm. And if they don't start doing that and they depend on government for um, when times get tough, uh, they're going to be waiting in a bread line to get uh, a ration of one egg and one potato like we've seen many times in history. And so I think the time to start growing your own food and getting quite radical about it has never been uh, greater than ever. Hmm. Um, okay, well, we are going to switch gears radically here now for a second and we're gonna we're gonna move on to the uh the topic at hand which of course is winterizing uh and now i I realize that we're talking about winter in canada and it covers a wide gamut Mm -hmm. newfoundland isn't the same as victoria which isn't the same as calgary different from whitehorse but still i'm going to put you in the unenviable position of giving everyone out there advice on winterizing Mm -hmm. uh because i'm sure there's a lot of it that's translatable no matter no matter where you live absolutely um you know i'm uh, much of what i see in your videos as far as tools go they look like modern versions of essentially what have been used for a very long time Mm -hmm. and perhaps uh you know people have been farming in Canada for thousands of years and winter's been around longer than that. But what has changed? I mean, if anything, and how we prepare for winter in Canada in recent years. Like recent years compared to how our grandparents would have done it? Oh yeah, let's just go by generation, sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, some some just very simple technology that's available to everybody is greenhouses, plastic, right, you know? Right. Plastic has completely revolutionized small scale and well it's revolutionized agricultural in general for better or worse but on on the small side um the application of single wall six mil greenhouse poly it can revolutionize anybody's homestead garden or uh, commercial farm because you can maximize what you get out of your limited season. And so, like you said, you know, Canada varies greatly, massive geographical area with quite a bit of um, difference between the Southern parts of Canada to the Northern parts of Canada, even to the East coast. But in general, simply by adding uh, single poly high tunnels or low tunnels, I've written about those in my book as well, Hmm. can quadruple the production of your farm. And and that, and that, that is even without pushing things into the winter because in Canada, in, in a cold climate, unless you're say in 
Victoria or like a coastal West Coast climate in in Canada, basically everywhere else is cold in the winter, more or less cold. Those places are cold too, but they're not below freezing. And so you can do some different things in the winter than you can do for the rest of us. But for the most part, to have a greenhouse that's growing crops is in you're putting in inputs, be it light heat units um, from some sort of you know, energy input, whether it be electrical or gas, uh, it's most like it's most of the time not worth it. And so that just because what you get out versus what you put in mm-hmm. becomes significantly diminishing returns. Now there's exceptions for that. If you look at large scale commercial agriculture that where, you know, you go in the lower mainland in Vancouver in the winter and you'll see 50 acre uh, heated greenhouse operations doing cherry tomatoes in the middle of January, February. Yeah. Obviously, they can make the economics of that work for them based on you know a variety of different circumstances, their marketplace and mm-hmm. the price that they get for that product. But when you look at sort of the path of least resistance approach in the, homes- the homestead, the small scale farm, mm-hmm. yeah. the easiest way to approach it is to just look at three season greenhouse growing. So using the high tunnel as a way to considerably expand your production on the shoulders of the season. So you're familiar with the typical bell curve that you see in any sort of um, distribution, right? How you've got the middle of the bell curve is where most of the, of that thing exists. And then on the, on the shoulders, which we call the outliers, we have dimin- a, a sort of a diminishing or reducing amount. So if you look at any growing season, a typical growing season in Canada looks like a bell curve. So mm-hmm. starting at uh, one, which would be on the bottom axis of that bell curve, we'd have January and the end, we'd have December. So that bell curve st- starts really slowly and it goes up and then call it in the center of the bell curve at the highest peak of production, you'd have July, call it the summer sol- summer solstice basically. Yeah. And then from there, it kind of goes down. It creates that typical bell curve. So the outliers of that bell curve are your shoulder season, which would be spring on the left of it and then fall on the right. What a three season greenhouse allows you to do is considerably increase your production capacity on the shoulders, which is the path of least resistance. Because as you go from, say, February into March, you're getting an increased amount of sunlight as we approach the summer solstice. Right. And then on the outside of that outlier on the right side of it, you're getting uh, a, a, a sort of um, compounding decrease, but you still get over 12 hours of light. So with just simple plastic and a sealed greenhouse, you can double or quadruple your productive capacity in those shoulders. Because mm. on a farm, if you if you look at it as a bell curve, at that summer solstice in the middle where, the, where your bell curve is at its peak, right. there's actually not much you can do to expand production. Right. If you want to expand production on any type of operation at that time, you just need more land. And so that's a limiting factor for most people because, you know, you might be farming on an acre and mm-hmm. go, okay, well, I've got, this is all I've got. So to to try to increase production at that time is pointless because you'd have to just take on more land. However, if you have greenhouses, unheated, simple, single layer poly greenhouses that you employ on the shoulder seasons, you can double or quadruple your productive capacity because you can essentially create a summer climate without any inputs, except mm-hmm. what comes naturally from the sun, on those shoulders as you would in the summer. And I've heard you describe in some of your videos, I think it's, is it similar to like a caterpillar sort of run mm-hmm. that you would, mm-hmm. uh, they're fairly easy to put up too and maintain. Like They're you, easy, you, they're cheap. Yep. Yeah. 
So, I mean, that's that's how you extend your season, which is which is great. I think a lot of people probably don't take advantage of that. I know, you know, in the in the small space I have on my property where we grow vegetables, it's not really something we think about. We just sort mm-hmm. of say, oh, well, here comes here comes the fall. It's time to start thinking about the end of the season. But this is uh, yes. Um, I mean, what what a great way to kind of, as you say, extend quite a lot and get a lot more bang for your buck out of your year. But yeah. I mean, why, but there will eventually come a time when winter's just going to take over and there, there'll yes. be a, a series of months where things have to be put to bed. I mean, why is it important to maybe consider putting your garden to bed uh, as opposed to just letting it sit until spring or? Well, it depends, it depends what your context is. I mean, there's a lot of variables there, but I, I would say, um, one way to think about winter growing, if that's what we're talking about, is there's certain crops that will survive a winter, depending on where you are, you know, understanding that Canada has great variability. But, you know, even as, you know, I have three different farms, really. I have my urban homestead in Kelowna, which I'm selling and moving out of, but this has been my base of operations for six, seven years. Um, And then I've got a 40-acre homestead that I'm developing to be an off-grid property. But I still have a leased farm. I have a half acre that I lease. It's not commercial. We have four high tunnels up there. And as we speak right now in the middle of winter, even though we are experiencing a little bit of a of warmer winter than mm-hmm. normal, um, we have carrots on the ground, kale, spinach, wow. beets, turnips. These crops under single layer poly can sustain up to minus 20 Celsius and we can harvest those crops all winter long. Wow. Now they're not growing. Yeah. Those crops are basically in a form of stasis. Okay. As in they were planted in the sort of last days of summer Mm -hmm. and established going into October and they basically sit there in the ground and it's better than putting them in a root cellar because they're on the ground. And if you can keep the winter precipitation off your crop, then your crop, your ground won't freeze in the same way as if it did, if it got rained on all November and then, you know, the first, first hard frost comes and then ground freezes really quickly because as anybody has taken basic science understands that if things are wet, they'll freeze a lot quicker. And so the basic idea is for winter, um, winter production, it's not necessarily things are, things are not growing, right? Mm-hmm. Basically across the board in Canada, things will not grow. One exception would be on the coast, in the West Coast. Right, but yeah. you plant spinach, carrots, kale, even some varieties of lettuce, turnips, beets. You establish these crops in the, the summer, and then you basically want to give yourself enough days to get that crop mature until it gets cold and then that crop just stays alive, but it's essentially in a form of stasis and you mm-hmm. can eat those things all winter long. And I built an entire, I built a business on that. We, we had, even in the coldest winter months, we were able to sell carrots. The, the, my three that are the most solid that I saw through every cold winter. And, you know, we, we, we get, we do, we have got winters that are down to minus 20, even in downtown Kelowna here. Yeah. Um, I was able to have carrots, kale, and spinach every single winter, and I was able to have a lot of it. Wow! Albeit four times less the productive capacity as I would I would have in the summer mm-hmm. because things aren't growing, and you basically have to just plant out a ton of area, and then you just harvest right. out there into winter, and it doesn't grow back. Whereas in the summer, yeah. I plant a bed of spinach, I cut it once, it grows back in seven days, I can cut it again. So, do you have a winter garden and a summer garden? I mean, I would imagine yeah, absolutely. that absolutely. Yeah, right. So the yeah, harvest absolutely. and 
Yeah, yep. go ahead. And, and it really, and really, what it's about to, to kind of, I like to look at things in, in sort of a first principles way where people can kind of understand it from the, a base level. The way to think about it is pick a day in the when when things get really cold. Like like for example, for you in Nova Scotia, what's the day? that it starts to really noticeably get cold for you? Would that be like mid-October or something like that? Yeah, I mean, really cold. Uh, it can go, it goes later and later. So, I mean, we uh, we can have some green grass right up until December these days. But yeah, um, I mean, it starts getting a little below freezing around then, but uh, it's not until mid-December that things, I mean, we had a snowstorm in late October, but then it all melted and it was we didn't have another snowstorm right. until January. But you still won't have a lot of daylight. So like right. I would say, you you know, probably by late October, mm-hmm. you're wearing a jacket, you know, you're getting cold rains and yes. stuff like that, That's right? right yeah. So so basically the way to think about it is any of these crops, there, there's certain crops that are cold hardy and certain and ones that aren't. And so when I talk about what you can overwinter, that's what I call it. Um, I didn't coin that term, but that's what I call it, overwintering, is that it means that you can have crops in the ground that will survive the winter. They won't grow, but they'll survive. So what you do is you basically pick a day. Let's just say it's October 30th, where it's really Mm -hmm. noticeable. By by Halloween, it's noticeably colder, and you really transition in October. Because some days, I I lived on the East Coast for years. You know, some some days you'll get, I remember some Halloweens in Montreal where it was like 20 degrees, but Overall, it's cold. Yes. And so basically you look at that day and then you count backwards. So you look on your seed package of whatever crop, let's say it's carrots. Carrots have an average day to maturity of 70 days. So basically what you're going to do, and and, and we're using greenhouses here. Mm -hmm. um, You're basically going to count backwards 70 days from October 30th. And then that's going to be the time frame that you have to grow that crop. So it's probably sometime in August. I mean, for me, the last time I can plant carrots successfully in Kelowna is the first week of August. That means that I've got 60, 70 days of relatively good weather. And with a greenhouse, if that greenhouse goes on in say late September, early October, Mm -hmm. I'm basically going to give that crop another four weeks of weather that it just experienced in the prior four weeks without a greenhouse. So I can basically keep that crop warm not getting the same amount of daylight hours, but the heat units are there and the soil's not getting, you know, you're mm. getting those fall rains coming in. That's really what cools soil down and that's yeah. what really prohibits the growth of a crop. If you can keep that that fall rain off, that crop will essentially keep growing. And then by the end of October, you've got a mature crop of carrots in your greenhouses, basically ready to survive the winter. And as long as you keep the soil dry, you'll be able to harvest those all throughout the winter. Now, in no, you know, in southern Ontario or northern Ontario, places of Quebec, and you guys out on the east coast, you do get colder winters. So, I'm not, I, I can't tell you what exactly which one of those will work for you. Yeah, of course. But they work for me out here, and 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 we're a lot colder than the west coast of British Columbia. Well, I mean, I, th- I mean, even just if it works a little bit, it already expands a lot of people's opportunity or a lot of uh, options that people have for their gardens. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I just, uh, I've got, right now I have a little square foot garden that's not very big, but this is, this is great. I love the idea of making a winter garden as well. Um, but uh, every year we kind of go through the same process where we take some of the leaves that have fallen off the trees and we sort of cover it over the bed of the yep. garden and yep. we put a cage over that to keep it all nice and warm. And uh, 
I've just doing some reading and prepping for this interview. I read that that a lot of vegetable gardens actually don't need much winterizing. They can just sort of allow the elements to to hit them, and and they will and they'll be all right. Is does that sound true to you? Have I just been yeah, giving myself is. extra work? It is. It is. I, I I've actually yeah I, I, my. my my sort of mo is to be as lazy as possible. So <laughs> okay. it, it comes it comes in with gardening and, and anything really in life. But you know, you look at where do you, where is there a point where there's diminishing returns and then the work is no longer worth it? Like you know, right. the, the example that I've I've always used when teaching farmers about how they can be more efficient and effective on their work is the analogy of a glass of water under the tap. Mm-hmm. And so it's the same with bat- lithium ion batteries when you charge them. And the idea is that. You you hit that tap full blast. That that glass fills up really quick. The top twenty percent is just bubbles. And in order to get that last twenty percent filled up, you really got to dial that tap back. Right. And it takes about the same amount of time to fill up that last twenty percent as it did the first eighty percent. And I, I I try to put all work done in the garden and the farm in through that lens. And what's good enough? And then and then at that you know. You, you really just gauge that on, you know, what your customers are happy with, what um, what doesn't compromise anything else on the crop, because mm-hmm. most people won't notice that 20%. And so the same, the, I have found the same occurs with any work on the garden, whether that's soil prep, amending the garden right. for the winter, you know, what, what's enough. And so I've just found over the years when it comes to putting gardens to bed, I used to do things like, go in and pull out all the, 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 so, you know, like say I had beds of lettuce and arugula Mm -hmm. or whatever the crops that I had going in the summer, they get killed off by that first frost. I used to go in and, uh, pull them out, reprep the beds and then plant cover crops like fall rye, winter peas, uh, rye uh, or or vetch or things like this. Uh, And the idea with a cover crop is a cover crop allows you to grow something in the bed, which will grow from, you know, you can put those in in late October, they'll grow up until December, depending on how your weather is. is. And then that crop will establish and you'll have a root system in place, which means that when the winter and fall rains come, you're not going to erode your soil. Because a lot of conventional growers, what they do, and you see this all throughout the Midwest, where all there's large scale agriculture, is they till their fields in late summer, and then the winter rains come and they basically lose a millimeter or two of topsoil every year. And so it's, this is where conventional agriculture becomes a system of diminishing returns. And so it's pointless that they do that. They have their reasons, of course, don't need to get into all those today, but they have their reasons to do that. And, but, but, but on the flip side, um, some gardeners, uh, more on the sort of uh, holistic land management side, organic side, they do a similar thing, which is, is not bad for the environment, which is good for the environment or their, their soil. But it's not necessarily good for the farmer because they'll go in, they'll they'll uh, till in or pull out their old crops, and then they'll plant these cover crops. Might refertilize the beds, they might put some more compost on, whatever. Mm-hmm. They put a bunch of work in to not really get much in return. Right. So as yeah. you said, when it comes to winter, it's easier just to let your garden sit and mm. just let it die, and then you get the benefit of root mass in the soil, which prevents erosion, which keeps organic matter in the soil, which actually will decompose, mm-hmm. and it'll add biology to your soil, which will right. increase your organic matter. So it's just easier to let things sit. 
And people overthink this stuff till they're blue in the face. And yeah. you can talk to some agronomists who will say one thing or the other. There's a lot of different opinions out there on what's better. But the yeah. question you have to ask is, at what cost and at what return? So how much do you put in versus how much you get back? And I would make the case that in most cases, especially in small-scale farming, doing things like cover crops and amendments at the end of the year are just not worth the effort. I think there's probably a few uh, first-time green thumbers out there who are going to be very um, comforted by that advice, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially now that we're into winter and they're like, oh, I just never got around to you know doing that thing I was supposed to do. But I mean, you're right. I mean, the, the internet is rife with just different suggestions and ideas. And I'm sure a lot of it comes from a good place and, and probably very helpful. I mean, uh, and it all, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it all depends on what it is that we're talking about. Like a fruit tree might need a little more winterizing care than say just, you know, your potatoes and and and, uh, and carrot garden, uh, which is different from maybe your perennials. Like it's all, yeah. it's all different. Um, totally. Yeah, are you are you growing much aside from vegetables? Oh yeah, I mean we've got um, absolutely. I mean we, we've gone full on. I mean uh, my urban homestead here is absolutely incredible. I mean we've got um, every kind of berry that you can grow in the Okanagan here. I mean my mm-hmm. my urban homestead, the, our lot is a quarter acre here. It, this used to be the home base of Green City Acres, mm-hmm. and then. When I when I stopped farming commercially, I just turned it into the most kind of hardcore urban homestead you could imagine. And so we've got every kind of perennial berry you can imagine here. Um, we've got uh, apples, peaches, pears. Um, you know, I, I'm a cannabis grower myself. We grow, mm-hmm. you know, we grow cannabis for ourselves uh, in the garden. Um yeah, absolutely. We doing doing everything we can in this tiny little space. We we grow an amazing amount. We we grew um, just is in in terms of berries on this garden this year. We grew over a we froze over a hundred pounds of berries. So wow. goji berries, hascap yeah. berries, um, a few different types of raspberries. I love golden raspberries because they have a really long season. Huh. Um, uh, what else? Uh, sea buckthorn berries. Uh, I love grapes. So I, I always do a lot yeah. of table grapes, massive amount of fruit. I mean, strawberries. I do, I do at least three raised beds of strawberries every mm-hmm. year. Um, we've got this little food for, so most of our garden is sort of intensive and just like I did with farming on 30 inch beds, I've kind of done a similar standardization with my, with my, with my garden where I have these raised beds made of um, just rough cut fur. They're 10 inches high. They're 30 inches wide on the inside. And they vary in size. The ones in my front yard are 18 feet long. The ones in my backyard are 23 feet long. But, you know, we do a lot in a very small space. And then in our food forest area, which is a mulched area where I've got about 10 different types of fruit trees in there. We also, I also do strawberries on the ground. And I also plant things that want to vine out like squash in there in there put cannabis plants in there but i also inoculated our the wood chips on the forest floor of this with a couple different varieties of mycelium two years ago and they have been fruiting consistently we literally we go out especially on the shoulder seasons in the spring and the fall we're picking massive um uh, chanterelles and uh, king oyster mushrooms right out of the garden bed, and and wow. some days we go out there and pick three pounds of mushrooms. My God, 
it's amazing. <laughs> it was a total experiment that I did and it worked yeah. out to be very fruitful. But we, 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 as far as plant-based food, we, we're getting as much as we possibly can off this little, this little property. And the, and the property that I'm developing this year, which is quite a massive kind of broad acre permaculture project, I'm putting in hundreds of uh, fruit, nut, uh, trees and and all kinds of perennials right. up there. So how do you uh, take care of those for the winter? Like like berries and 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 fruit trees. I mean, I'm I'm asking as much for the audience as I am for myself. I, I have a brand new peach tree in my backyard, and and we have lots of raspberries on our property as well. And and again, we sort of have had the mindset in the past of like, well, just do less is more. But maybe there's more that we could be doing. Yeah. Well, you know, I I don't do anything. I, okay. I, All right. No, I don't. I don't do anything. I, I prune them back a little bit just to clean yeah. them up. Yeah. Um, especially because, like, uh, on the front, the front side of my property, our property is very fenced in. But the front side of the property has sort of an iron rod style fence, and then I've got this ten foot arbor with wires in between. And we we literally have like a green fence essentially in the you know for the four months of the year. It's just a green wall. And uh, it's edible on both sides. So I encourage people mm. to walk by to help themselves to whatever they can reach safely. And um, I basically, I prune that back a bit in the late fall when things are, when all the foliage is dropped off, just so that the branches aren't hitting people on the sidewalk, essentially. But but uh, no, I don't, I don't do anything to any of that stuff. Um. Curtis, this is this has been amazing. I, I mean, uh, I mean, we could just probably go on and on. Um, about, I mean, you you got a real passion for this. You got a lot of knowledge about it. Um, I'm wondering, do you ever get a chance to play any more music? Um, I'm looking forward to that day very much. <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, ever since I had children. You know, my daughter's four, my son's one and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also in the thick of developing the most ambitious land development that I've ever done in my life. And so I just, I just don't have time, yeah. but I'm really looking forward to that time. We're, 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 we're building a, a 2,500 square foot passive solar home on oh, our new wow. property and it's totally off grid. And we've designed the home to really take into consideration a lot of the sort of fundamental permaculture ideas like of zoning mm-hmm. of where you live you know you got your zone zero which is you or your family how you live your zone one your zone two so on and so forth we've really designed this home around that idea and music is a part of that and um, yeah. my, both my kids um, are very fascinated with music and so we're planning to put an upright piano right in the center of the home and, and I do play the guitar for my son he, he, he's fascinated by it anytime he's kind of going ballistic i just pull up the guitar and he's immediately just pacified <laughs> yeah yeah so i'm I'm looking forward to that very much it probably will i've got an a, a, a next couple of years of very busy work in developing this property but yeah i mean i'm really looking forward to that we unschool our kids so that is you unschool your kids Unschool, yeah. Okay, is unschool. that a, that's a term I'm not familiar with. Maybe it, it's yeah. a, a better term is really child-led learning. Is okay instead, right. of, instead yeah. of kind of compartmentalizing your kids into like subjects and grades. Like, okay, now it's time to learn this, or now it's time to learn that. Okay, now you're going to go with these kids that are your same age group, and all of these sort of the, the whole system. You know, the way the, I've learned so much in my in my journey in farming and through permaculture that I've applied so much of it to just my life. And, mm. and the unschooling idea 
is sort of a, it's actually very much an anarchist idea in that you don't lead through the idea of force. And so public school is very much force because if kids had the decision, if they were able to make that decision, they probably wouldn't go there, but it's okay. Let's put our kids here so that mom and dad can go and do this nine to five. And then you're in this grade and this grade. And now when the teacher says it's time to learn this subject, you learn this. I, I did not do well with that. I was a terrible student when I was a kid. I think I'm pretty smart. I just didn't fit into that mold. And so my wife and I really believe in this idea, uh, called child-led learning, which was kind of really, I, I wouldn't say it was invented, but there was a man named John Holt in the 80s that wrote a series of books about it. And the idea is if you let a child decide what they want to do and when they want to do it, you'll actually um, satiate their desire to learn because it'll be on their own terms instead mm-hmm. of forcing them to do so. And we found it's just been absolutely incredible with wow. how our children i mean we don't see it so much in our son yet because he's still a, more or less a baby but our daughter is she's learning to read just by us reading books and 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 i'm not sitting there trying to spell words out to her mm-hmm. i read to her a lot and she she's at a point where she can basically reiterate a story to me just because she knows the story and she's already familiarizing herself with her words and she's doing this entirely on her own. And we've seen this, my, my wife and I are very unconventional. Both of us were entrepreneurs. She, she's a, you know, by choice, a stay at home mom now, which is a, a career of its own. And we have traveled around the world in my career teaching people about farming. We've been to five different um, countries in the last number of years. And we've always kind of gravitated towards people that are unconventional. And we've met so many parents in our travels that did this, that did unschooling. And I tell you, these kids are unbelievably advanced. I mean, we've got, I've got a friend in Mexico, uh, a U.S. expat, and he has three daughters and his oldest daughter, Andrea, I'm not kidding you, reads classic English literature because she just wants to. So she, she, she's reading, um, classic books like, uh, Dostoevsky and all, all these classic authors. She reads these books and, how and old it's is she? interest nine years old. Wow. His, his seven-year-old daughter taught herself calculus because she was curious about how the world worked. And you don't see that. You don't see that in conventional school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, we, we've discovered just kind of by observing and interacting with what happens in nature, what happens in natural systems, we don't have these compartmentalized systems. And it's, it's so much of it pertains to even what's going on now. People thinking that a pharmaceutical approach, a vaccine is somehow going to save them. When we know anybody who subscribes to organic agriculture and permaculture knows on a fundamental basis that putting chemicals and toxins on the soil does not help the soil in the wrong, the long run. How are our bodies any different? We're born of the soil. We are of the soil. What's healthy on the soil is healthy for the body. And so it's, it's, we apply this principle universe, these principles universally. And we've just found it's just been absolutely incredible and such a joy to see your child want to learn just because it's their decision, not yours. This is a whole other podcast now. It is. <laughs> it literally is, yeah. Well, we'll have to come back and talk about this too. Uh, Curtis, this, this has been really great, man. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, my pleasure. 
Connected to the Land is a PV Industries podcast produced by Village Sound, and I'm your host, Ian Sherwood. A special thanks to this episode's sponsor, PV Mart, the 100% Western Canadian-owned, down-to-earth retail chain. You can find more information on PV Mart as well as this episode's guest at connectedtotheland.info. Our affiliated website and a great resource for homesteading, farming, and all things connected to the land. Thanks for listening.